0: You may have noticed in our bulletin, the Friday night movie is going to be The Secrets of Jonathan Sperry. This is um, a wonderful movie, especially for teenagers. So I would suggest that if the teenagers uh, are able, that they come Friday night. That's not just teenagers, that anybody can come, but it's especially for teenagers Uh, I can assure you, whatever you have planned for Friday night is not going to be as important or as benefiting as what that movie will be. And I don't care how good looking he may be, (laughs) or she may be, bring her. Okay, let's prepare ourselves this morning in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. And during that time, we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father Any unconfessed sins which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are in charge of all things and that we have nothing to fear and everything to look forward to. As we study the book of Joshua, there's so many things for us to learn. We pray that we will learn the easy way from the experience of those who have gone before us rather than from the school of hard knocks. So we pray that you will help us to focus this morning, for we pray it in Christ's name, Amen. Last Sunday we were looking at Joshua chapter 2 and we noticed that God had given the Israelites victory over King Sihon and Og, Amorites, who were despicably wicked. And God instructed them to wipe them out, everything that breathes other than animals, All the men, women, and children. And so we made a distinction between God's righteous judgment on evil and those who indiscriminately kill innocent people through terrorism. Some people will try to malign the character of God by His instructions to the Israelites to wipe out these people. And that's what we spent some time on last Sunday was recognizing that this was the righteous and loving thing to do. Had he not done that, that cancer would have spread to Israel and he would have had to deal with them. Now we're going to pick up our study in the last couple of verses in chapter 2. So if you turn in your Bible to Joshua chapter 2. We'll start with verse 23. We're going to see that the two spies that were sent out to do a recognizance of the land of Canaan have done their job. We spent some time with their interaction with Rahab the harlot. And now they're coming back. Joshua chapter 2 verse 23. Then the two men returned and came down from the hill country and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun and related to him all that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Surely the Lord has given all the land unto our hands, and all the inhabitants of the land, moreover, have melted away before us." So. The inhabitants of the land have uh, melted away. That is in their hearts, remember? They had hit the panic button. They had heard what happened in Egypt. They heard what happened on the east side of the Jordan. And their morale was so low, you could say they had no morale. They were extremely fearful of the Israelites. So this was the report. And this is somewhat different than the spies' report that had gone on earlier. Remember when Moses brought them up to Kadesh Bornea? And he sent out 12 spies, and they came back and they gave a report. I want to compare these two reports. So, if you'll turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 13 and verse 31. This is Numbers 13.31. But the men who had gone up with him said, that is, gone up with uh, Caleb and Joshua, we are not able to go up against the people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people whom, who we saw in it are men of great size. Verse 33, there are also, We also saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight. Notice that in their own sight they appeared as grasshoppers. And so we were in their sight. So there, there's a lot of hyperbole going on here, a lot of exaggeration. They said they are Nephilim in the land. That is a, an exaggeration. It really would be better to have put it as, an, as a simile, a figure, of speech. They are like the Nephilim. If you don't know who the Nephilim uh, were, they were the progeny, the offsprings of the angels who had procreated with the daughters of men in Genesis chapter 6. They were, the angels were called the Banaha Elohim, which is the sons of God, Always used for angels, and so this was a a hybrid of some sort. It was a, a, a mixture of part angelic and part um, human, and this, of course, was outside the scope of uh, God's plan. Never were the angels and the uh, women to be uh, had the ability to do this, and so. He had the flood. We had the universal flood. And there were how many people that came through that flood? Eight. And none of them were Nephilim. So what does that mean? All the Nephilim had drowned. There were, there are no offsprings of Nephilim. And so this is uh, a figure of a speech in a, in, a, in a sense. It's, it's really just exaggeration. They, they said that we are like grasshoppers in their sight. Well, you put a grasshopper up to a man, the size of a man, and uh, surely they, they were giants. There were big people there, some big guys, but they weren't the Nephilim. And the whole idea here is their attitude of fear and lack of trust in God. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 26. Now, as we read this, I want you to note the attitude. Your attitude towards God is extremely important. So in verse 26 it says, yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God, and you grumbled, underline that one, in your tents and said, because the Lord hates us, He brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Now that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? The only thing that God has done is protected them, did one miracle after another. He had a, a... a light by night and a, and a cloud by day to leave them. He fed them with manna. He, just everything that they had. And now they have concluded because they're so scared. This was God's plan. He He got us out of bondage and all of those ten plagues uh, on the Egyptians. His plan was to take us and then cross the Red Sea, get into the wilderness and and. Provide all these miracles for us so He could get over here and give us to Amalekites so they could destroy us. That is laughable, isn't it? That's what we do when we are living by our emotions. There's no thinking in emotions and they were just not thinking and this was their conclusion. Verse 29. Did I do 28? 28. Okay, let's go 28. Uh, Where can we go up? Our brethren have made our hearts melt, saying, this is the report from the spies, the people are bigger and taller than we. The cities are large and fortified to the heaven. That means they had walls and they're saying, the walls go all the way up to heaven. I believe they're exaggerating a little bit. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. This was just uh, people who were large. Verse 29, Then I said to you, Do not be shocked nor fear them. This is what the Lord had told them. The Lord your God goes before you. Underline that. If we have enough time, I'll get to that, and you'll see how that's going to connect into what we're going to be studying today. The Lord your God goes before you, will Himself fight on your behalf, just as He did for you in Egypt before your eyes. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord your God carried you, just as He, a man carries his son, in all the way which you have walked until you came to this place. But for all of this... You did not trust the Lord your God. Verse 33. Who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and a cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go? Verse 34. Then the Lord heard the sound of your words, and he was angry and took an oath. He heard the grumbling. Even if you're complaining in private, guess who hears it? Even if it doesn't come out verbally, guess who knows it? Verse 35. This is the oath. Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. Except Caleb, the son of Jephunim, he shall see it. And to him and to his sons I will give the land on which he has set foot because he has followed the Lord faithfully. The Lord was angry with me also on your account, saying, Not even you shall enter here. Who is he talking about here? Moses! Moses had a little temper tantrum and didn't obey God's Command And so he's not going either. So this is Moses writing this. Verse 38. Joshua the son of Nun who stands before you. He shall enter there. Encourage him for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. Verse 39. Moreover you little ones. Who you said would become a prey. And your sons. Who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter the land, shall enter there, and I will give it to them, and they shall possess it. Why? Because they didn't rebel. They weren't the ones that said, Oh, no, we can't go. God is angry about this whole deal. Look at verse 40. But as for you, turn around and set out for the wilderness by the way to the Red Sea. Now, why did I take the time to go over this comparison? What was the the report that Joshua got? Surely the Lord has given us the land, delivered the land unto us and the people too. Let's go there and get it. And God is going to bless them mightily for that in contrasting it to what happened before. Now, we can look at the people who went on before and we can say, For were they stupid. How could they not believe God after all He had done for them and trusted Him to go into the land? What about you? What about me? God has something for us. He has a supernatural, spiritual life for believers in our dispensation. And He is offering it The only thing keeping anyone from living the abundant life that He would give us, that He wants to give us, that supernatural life where we are not bound and controlled by our circumstances. We can have the peace and happiness and contentment and everything that God wants for us and we're we're not chained to our circumstances. We can all have that. And if we don't have it, it's not God's fault. It's there for the taking. But there are so many people that are afraid. They're so stuck in their old wheel ruts of doing things the same old way, not trusting the Lord, not casting their burden upon Him. They'll figure out they'll do it their way. And He allows them to do it. But what I want you to see is when there are believers today who don't grow up spiritually, who stay in their diapers spiritually. And he takes them, and what is the attitude he, he is? extremely angry. Their bones were going to be scattered all over the wilderness because of their lack of faith. Because they didn't trust him and because they were afraid. And so many people are that way today. They just live their life. When people don't, you see, you have choices. But there is no neutral ground. Either you're going to be a Caleb or a Joshua and say, "Lord, I see, I understand, I know that you have this supernatural way of life, and I'm ready to go for it. I'm ready to trust you and continue to obey you and grow." You can either do that, or you can say, "Oh well, you know, I've got it's hard to it's hard to put church in my daytime. It's just so crowded." You have that attitude? Fine, you can do it. What's God's attitude? the same attitude that he had towards those, he said, turn around, head back for the wilderness, and every one of you are going to die wandering around, confused and lost. I just wanted to give you that tidbit before we move on. Okay, let's go to chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. We're getting closer to crossing the river. That's the good news. The bad news is we're not going to cross it today. Oh, but that's all right. You won't mind. By the time we're through with this message, there's so much that you need to learn and glean from these scriptures that you won't mind not crossing the river today. There's things that have to be looked at first. So let's read verse 1 and 2, chapter 3. I guess I better get in Joshua. I'm over here back in Deuteronomy. Okay, Joshua chapter 3. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and he and all the sons of Israel set out from Shittim and came to the Jordan, and they lodged there before they crossed. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp. Now, let's just stop there for right now. So, Joshua gets the report. What does he do? The next morning, early the next morning, he says, move out. Now, there's something that you can't miss here. And I'm going to really throw the anchor out here for a moment so we won't miss what... You can't see it in the Scriptures, but there's something lurking here that we need to address that is very rarely addressed. In fact, I don't know if I've ever heard a pastor address this situation. But... First of all, I want you to know that this is Joshua's first command. He's going to move the people. Up to this time, it was Moses. But this is uh, uh, Joshua's first jump out of the box. He has command of the people for the first time. And there's only one problem. He knows what the Lord told him to do, but he doesn't know how to do it. How are you going to do it? God said cross the Jordan. Well, Jordan's flooding, it's about a mile wide, and it's got treacherous currents and he's got all these people and all this baggage and animals and everything to cross. So, he's going to do something that is very very important that we catch what he's what he's going to do. You see, God gave him a general command, cross the river. He didn't tell him how he was going to do it. He didn't tell him when he was going to do it. He just said, do it. And so here you are, Joshua. You're in command of about two million people. And you're going to make your first command. And you don't even know how it's going to turn out. Have you ever been in that situation where you knew that God told you to do something in a general fashion, but you don't, have, you don't have a clue about how you're going to go about obeying that command. And this is what we're going to learn from Joshua in this situation. Because Joshua thought, okay, let's put some pieces of the puzzle together here. God told me to cross the river. The river is eight miles away. I think a good idea to start with is get the people to the river. Now, he doesn't know how to cross it yet, but he knows I can't cross it eight miles away. So he says, Move out, and the move people move about seven or eight miles, something like that, to the edge of the river. Now, here's here's the part um, that I, I I don't want to just uh, gloss over this part. I'm going to give you some examples because um, this is too too important just to uh, go by. So. Let's let's give you examples of things that God tells you to do in a general sense and you don't know exactly how you're going to do it. Let's take, for instance, the Bible is very clear that the husband is the head of the house. He has authority over his wife and children. That's pretty clear. That's fine. But, as a husband, what does that mean? I mean... There's a lot of details in there you're not sure about. But you know one thing for sure. You're in charge. Now, if a, if God has given husbands authority over, their, over his house and his house is not running so well, if everything has essentially fallen into the ditch, who's responsible? Come on, tell me. Okay, good. Thank you. The husband is responsible. So many times today the Families are in chaos, and the husband is trying to blame it on everyone else. But the buck stops with the husband because he's in charge. So let's say that a father, a, a husband, is out of. A, one day he wakes up and he recognizes all is not well in my household. Things are a mess, and he can start by thinking, "Okay, what do I know? I know that God put me in charge. That means." I'm responsible for this mess. I can point, well, the kids are all, oh, the kids are just hellions. Rugrats, ankle biters. I mean, they just, whew. And my wife shows me no respect, and, uh, you know, we're in debt because uh, she thinks the credit card is unlimited. You know, you, you can give all these expressions and examples, but the bottom line is, God holds him responsible. So what can he do? That's the question. I'm going to give you some uh, examples here of what you can do in that situation. What do you think would be a good place to start? Your house is a mess. You don't know You know that God put you in charge and you want to set it in order. What do you think would be a good thing to do? The first thing to do, would you, what would you think? You can speak out. You can raise your hand. Whatever. There you go. All right. Pray. Wouldn't that be a good idea? How about talking to God about this issue? And so you go to the Lord and you say, uh, Father, I know that you want me to be in charge and I know that this house isn't in order, so uh, I'm asking you to help me. I'm asking you to give me wisdom in order to take care of this situation so I can comply with your command. Do you think God will answer that kind of prayer? Uh, you you don't have to turn there right now, but in James chapter one, verse five and six, it says that if we ask the Lord for wisdom that He will give it to us very uh, without any problem, only we must ask believing that He will take care of it. So the first the first thing you want to do is go to the Lord father i 'm in this jam I, I, I want to help I, want, I need help, and what can I do? Now the next thing to do is how about searching the Scriptures, finding out what God says in His Word about it. So you search through the Scriptures, you try to find everything you can that is related to that. So you've talked to God about it, you've gone through the Scriptures. Uh, What else would be a, a good idea, something that you could do that might be helpful? How about analyzing your situation? I mean, you need to get down to what is really, specifically, what is out of whack. You can even make a list. You can say, okay, I talked to God, check. I searched the Scriptures, check. Now I'm analyzing the situation. Just where is it gone off track? This is just being very objective. And then the next thing you can do is to, how about, Uh, asking questions in order to get the facts. Now, this is what I'm saying. Let me explain. Let's say a husband, as the the house is out of order, where should be the first place that he looks at, the first thing he should look at with regards to trying to set it in order? Uh, Maybe I shouldn't say the first thing. Who should he start with in order to set his house in order? Himself, right himself he's, he's got to be very humble and objective to say, okay, I'm doing this wrong, I'm, I'm just being a, uh, I'm allowing them to treat me like a doormat. there's all this disrespect and he can point the finger and say, it's their fault, but no wait a minute, he's the one that's allowing it." So he looks at himself. then where would he go? The wife. And he needs to analyze that. He needs to talk to her. Listen, the wife is the helpmate. He needs to go to her and he says, "Hun, we we've got a problem here. Uh, I, I've, I'm taking responsibility. It's my fault. God holds me accountable. But I'm trying to set this thing right. I'm trying to get this train back on the track. Now, I know that I have areas that I that I'm going to work on and things are going to change. But I want your input. What do you think? needs to happen for this house to be better set back on track. And you need to listen. She has good ideas. She has something. The wives have something that no husband ever has, and that's the female perspective. Oh, we can see it. Oh, just forward right through that. we got it. No. There's got to be a little sensitivity sometimes. You got to get the female perspective. And you can go, where else would you might go? Well, the church. How about the kids? I mean, if you have kids, how about talking to the kids and asking them? All you're doing is getting information. You've analyzed the situation. You know there's a problem, and you're getting facts. You've got to get all... Uh, Johnny, what do you think about this situation? Uh, Daddy's going to make some changes. What do you think? Now, uh, uh, certainly the wife's input would be uh, much more uh, valuable probably than the kids. I mean, the kids might say, I think in order to have a better household, we all have three desserts every meal. Okay, well, I got your input. Where else might they go? They might look at other families that seem to be on track that they have it together, and go talk to them. Hey, it seems like you've got it together. Tell me, what are some of the things that you do here to to, to make things stay on track? Or you might go to a mature believer, or uh, the pastor, maybe. Last resort. <laughs> I mean, if there's something, that uh, you, a, a block that you can't get past and you need some counsel, that's okay. But what I'm saying is, in a pragmatic, practical way, get all the facts that you can. Now, you've talked to God, you've searched the Scriptures, you've analyzed the situation, and you've asked questions and got all the facts. What do you think you should do next? Move out. What did Caleb do? He didn't know exactly how it was all going to go down, but he acted on what he knew. He, they had to get to the river if they were going to cross it. So he says, move out. Let's go to the river. You see, this is the thing. Uh, you, can, you can implement plans. The, the husbands can. There, there has to be changes made, obviously, if it's out of kilter. So he's trying, he's gone to the Lord, he's prayed to him, he's gone through the Scripture, got all the help he can. And you know, some people will go that far, but they never pull the trigger. And do you know why? I'll show you why. By the way, I don't know if you all realize we're under a test this morning. It's called a shutter test. Y'all might not hear it over there, but every once in a while you hear a bang! And I saw everybody, like strings on their head. Phew. Okay, why do people not pull the trigger? they got all the facts, they got everything they can do. Here's the problem right there. Fear is the problem. So many husbands won't set their house in order because they don't pray, they don't search the Scriptures, they don't analyze the situation, they don't get the facts because they're undercut right from the beginning, because they think if I do anything different that would upset my household, my kids and my, and my wife, I might lose them. They might get angry. They might leave. They might do this or they might do that. Who are you more afraid of, your family or God? I think you ought to be more afraid of God. What did He do to the Israelites when they didn't pull the trigger, when they didn't cross the first time? Very angry. And you're in for a world of hurt if you are neutralized by fear. So, fear is usually the problem. Faith is the solution. Joshua didn't exactly know how everything was going to go down when a, when a, when a, a father or a husband starts setting his house in order. He doesn't know how it all is going to go, but he has some general keys that God has given him. You're in charge. You're to love your wife as you love yourself. And you are to bring up your children in the admonition of the Lord and teach them authority orientation, how to be humble. You've got guidelines. But you get all the input, you get all the information together, and you've got to start making the change. You've got to start doing it. And most people don't do it because they're afraid. If a husband doesn't do it, it's going to be much worse. A lot of times, well, it'll get better someday. No, it's not going to get better, it's going to get worse. So he has to trust the Lord that even if his wife says, well, you're just a big bully and I'm leaving you, adios. He can say, well, you know, I'd really rather you stay. I'm not forcing you out, but I am going to do what is necessary for me to obey God's command. He says, I'm the head of the house. I'm responsible for it. I'm going to put it in order. And if that causes you to leave me and break the contract, the marriage contract, that's on your head. Now, the children, probably, depending on what their age are, aren't going to leave the house. If they're six years old, I don't know how far they would get. But sometimes there's teenagers. And they say, you are the biggest bully in the world. I'll not put up with that. Well, okay. You can either be under my love, protection, and provision here under this roof, under my rules, or you can go out and you can set your own rules but you're not going to be under my my provision and my protection. You'll still be under my love, but go out there if you want to, heck, do it. And the Lord is going to just shake you like a leaf. Faith. See, when you do these things, these steps, in order to fulfill the general command that God has given you, you have a guarantee that God is going to bless you. And you can say, well, what if they leave? What if this happens? What if that happens? What if my in-laws come over here and with a shotgun, well, whatever it may be? You, you uh, I, I don't care. Blow me to pieces. I'll be with uh, General Lee and and Stonewall Jackson. Just whatever. Just I'm going to do it. That's the kind of faith it takes. You can, it's not a negotiating thing. I mean, you want to get all the input you can from people, but the final. The final responsibility is on the husband. Don't be frozen by fear. That's the big enemy, fear. That's why people don't do it. How about another illustration? How about people who are, uh, this can be a, a mother or a father, and we know that the Lord tells us to discipline our children and your children are not responding to what you're normally doing. So, uh, you've decided that you're going to follow through with a few of the Scriptures that have to do with the rod. The rod. Corporal punishment, spanking, whipping. Here's a few verses. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Proverbs 13, Do not Do not hold back discipline from the child. Although you beat him with a rod, he will not die. <laughs> I'm just reading Scripture. Now, they may make you think they're going to die. I've seen kids just go berserko just because Daddy says, I'm going to get the paddle. They had not even heard them yet. Recently, I had a little, a little baby goat, and we were going to dehorn the, the goat, put him in this little box, and you get this hot iron, you know, I don't want to describe all that, but anyhow, I just put the goat in there and started shaving its head. Oh, it went berserk on. And It doesn't hurt. That's the way some kids are when, you know, well, I'll go to the next verse. Um Proverbs 22, 15. Folly is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of discipline will drive it far from him. If anybody, any of you ever had children or been around the children or are a child, you ought to know that there's mischief bound up in the heart, especially little boys. Little boys are nasty and they're into trouble always. Well, nearly always. If they're not in trouble, they're on their way to trouble. I can speak from experience. So, Let's say, here's another scenario. You know the general principle that God said, use the rod. Okay, uh, let's say that, uh, you, in this case, you're the mama. Daddy's out on an oil rig somewhere, and the kids are about to burn down the house, so you've got to do something. So, you think, okay, I'm going to obey this command. But how do you go about it? I mean, first of all, what are you going to use? You're going to use a belt, a paddle, a wooden spoon. Don't use your hand, by the way. The hand is caressing and so forth. And it doesn't make a good paddle anyway. It's too soft. So you got to decide, okay, and where am I going to do it? Am I going to do it in the bedroom? I'm going to take him out in the shed, woodshed, <laughs> or wherever. you got to say where is that going to happen? Then how am I going to do it? Now, depending on the age of the child. Uh, some parents have found that, okay, I'm going to do this, I, I, and, and I, I don't know exactly how to do it and they, do you just tell them to bend over and they bend over and whack, whack, whack it's all over. But you might get them bent bend over the first time and whack and then they're jumping all over the room. What are you going to do then? You've got to put some thought in it. Got, and the Bible doesn't say okay, then, uh, what you've got to do is get that child and bend them over your knee hold this part with this hand have the paddle in this hand and whack, whack, whack. you got to think about these things. How hard are you going to hit? I mean, too hard is abuse, and not hard enough, they get a, eh, like this. So what are you going to do? How do you know when you've hit hard enough? Well, you have got to hit hard enough to humble them. And it's not—I don't want you to think that every infraction, infraction, calls the pad, uh, get the paddle out. I mean, there's other ways. This is other things that we need to raise them up in a way that they're going to be oriented to authority. But there's always all these kind of problems. You have children. Uh, what do you do when children interrupt? Here's a good example. Well, what do you do? There's people in this church that have really great ideas, and we ought. When you have a problem, you go first of all. You handle this problem the same way. By the way, first of all, you pray about it. You search the scriptures. You analyze the situation, and then you get uh, you ask questions, get the facts, and then it's time, uh, Johnny follow me. It's time. But sometimes if, like if they're uh, interrupting what the families do here, some of them, they have taught their children, when you want to talk to me and I'm talking to another adult, you go up and you just put your hand on my shoulder. You just touch them. That's all. That's a nonverbal signal that the child would like to say something. And the parent might take their hand and just, you know, as they're talking, pat it. Okay, I know you're there. And that way it gives the the parent makes the decision as to when to stop the conversation and let them in, not the child. Children that come in and interrupt adults when they're speaking, they are rude and their parents have failed in that area. Another one, young, this is what usually with younger kids, and that is when you say your child's name, Johnny? Sometimes Johnny just, uh, you know, doesn't even respond. And the parents go to the child. Isn't that the tail wagging the dog? I mean, when you say something to the child, one good thing is train them is every time you say something, yes, mommy, yes, daddy. See, they've already said yes, doesn't matter what you're saying. In their mind, they've already agreed, yes. Yes, mommy, yes, daddy. Doesn't matter what it is. You, you, you tell me, I'm doing it. So you get them to respond that way. And if they're over in the other room or uh, in the same room or ways away, Johnny, what, what the response a lot of times, yeah, no, that won't work. Johnny, yes, Mommy, come here, right there. So you teach them these things. But it comes down to something has happened. There's been open defiance or whatever, and now it's time to use the paddle. We went through this whole, whole scenario, and now what is it? It's time to pull the trigger. Do it. And every person has their own personality, their way of doing it. But essentially, we're talking about a general principle that God gives us, a command. We know we're supposed to do it. And I'm giving you the way to do it. I'll give you one more. And this would be good for the teenagers here. Not only teenagers uh, are the ones that can use this, but I think they would probably uh, use it the most. And that would be uh, breaking away from... The wrong crowd. You're, you've fallen into an association with some people that are not the kind of people you should be with. Here's a scripture for you, by the way. First Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And something similar to that that you may have to break away from is someone who is not a believer. If you're courting and someone isn't a believer, you have to remember this. Be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. What I'm talking about, you're in a situation and all of a sudden or after a period of time it dawns on you, this is not good. God tells me to break away from this and I want to obey Him, but I don't know how to do it. What's the first thing you do? Everybody. Second thing. What? (laughs) Search the Scriptures. Okay? The third thing, analyze the situation and get the facts, ask questions, and then you have to pull the trigger. Here's the thing, though. You see, if you just say, well, I'm just going to break it up, and you you, you can break up from people, that's pretty easy to do but you want to do the right thing in the right way. Because if you go and you seem to come across as self-righteous and better than thou, because they're doing things that uh, the Lord would frown upon, you don't go in your self-righteous, pious attitude and they think, uh-huh, well, don't you think you're something? Well, since when did you become a missionary? Or they might say, are you a missionary? You can say, yes, I am. Second Corinthians chapter 5. God is reaching the lost through who? Through you. You are an ambassador for Christ. And maybe you could teach Him a little doctrine. I don't know how it would go down, but you need to put thought into it. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Search the Scriptures. I just gave you one. And then try to do it a a right thing the right way. You don't want to be overbearing, and yet you're not going to negotiate with them. If they say, well, uh, we've been smoking pot. And they say, Will you stay with us if we cut down from four joints to two? Or it might be bare joints, I don't know what it is, anyhow. You you don't negotiate. But you don't come across as self righteous. This is kind of a balancing act. It's another thing that you need to do to the goal is to obey God's revealed plan, his general plan, but you have to go through this process to do it. You know, one reason marriage is such a, a tough nut to crack is because God gives us general principles to live by, but he, he doesn't get in our face and say, now today go two places the right, turn left. He doesn't do all that. We have to use discernment. A husband is to love his wife as he loves his own body, but he is also to be respected by her. So what do you do when the wife doesn't respect you? There are times when husbands need to be firm with their wives. And there's other times that they need to be very flexible. The wife is not a child. You need to give her time to get her house in order. If she's angry and she's fired off at you and she's disrespected you, depending on the circumstances, you might just say, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let that go. And chances are, in a short time, she'll come back to you and say, "I'm sorry that I threw off the flew off the handle and spoke to you that way." There's tons of discernment in all this. You understand that? So what we're I've spent a lot of time on this this morning, but it's important. Joshua didn't know how he was going to do all this, but he knew what God wanted him to do. We don't know how all the particulars in being a good husband, being in charge of the of the house or how to spank a child corporal punishment-wise, or how to break away from uh, uh, the wrong crowd. All these things we know the general deal, but God God has given us a brain, and He wants us to rely on Him, talk to Him, and ask Him for help. That's what He wants you to do. Do you think you really think that God is going to, over and over in the Bible, say, I'm here for you. I want to help you. Speak out to Me. Pray continually. All this kind of thing. And then you go to him, he's, oh, well, no, I'm, I'm, I'm busy, or uh, you're small potatoes, I got other things. No. He is going to do it. This is how you live and walk by faith. Okay. Now, the people get to the water. They're at the water. They've been away. They're all excited. They're talking about crossing the water. Now, just put yourself in the, in the people's position for just a moment. You go over a hill and you see and that it's, ah, the water, the river. And so you go down to the river and they look and they go, mm. it's about a mile wide. And it is flowing with treacherous currents. And you know that the Lord said to cross it. And they were going to camp there for three days. What do you think they were doing for those three days? Huh? How many times do you think they looked at the river? You reckon every morning that they got up, somebody would go out there and look, come back, and at breakfast they say, what does it look like? It's the same. It's still a mile wide and impossible to cross. How much sleep do you think they got? Three days and three nights. And what was on the other side? When they got to the other side, it wasn't like it was the, uh, what is that, the Emerald City? Wizard of Oz? No, there were giants over there that was wanting to kill them. And a lot of them. They were outnumbered. They were outgunned. They had fortified cities. They had chariots. They had everything against them. And they were going to sit there for... Three days uh, to get prepared. Now, we also see. Let's go back to uh, verse two again. Where's my glasses? Yeah. Okay. Um, here's the, here's the thing. Um, during those three days, they were to batten down the hatches and get their food and everything in order. But most of all, they were going to have to get their mind right. They'd go out there and they would see the, that river. You know how from Mount Hermon, where this water comes from, the snow that was melted, to the Dead Sea, you know what the drop is in that short distance? 2,000 feet. Think how fast water can be traveling when it's going over maybe maybe 70 miles or whatever it was, but it's dropping 2,000 feet. I mean, if you tried to fish there, you'd throw the cork way over here, and before you could get even to the reel, it's, it's way over here. And you're supposed to cross that. So uh, they were going to have all these um, people on the other side waiting for him. But see, Joshua was smart because he sent out spies. He did we're to do everything that we can do to obey God's command and when we hit an impasse then who's going to take over from there God is He's going to get the people right up to the river he's going to get them organized and they're going to do get these commands and so forth and we're going to see next Sunday boy I wish we had two more hours and don't think that I couldn't even I wouldn't even slow down for two more hours because it's so good what what But But the priests are going to get the ark and they're going to carry it right up to the water. Put their feet in the water. What else can they do? Nothing. Nothing. Zilch. It's all up to God then. But they do everything they can on their part to get there. And then you have to rely on God. Now, here's the thing. God already told them, the land is yours, I'll I'll give you the people. But they had to do something first, cross the river. And the river was absolutely impossible. Now, why would God do that? Why would He send them right up to the river, which is impossible to cross, and on the other side, you, you still have battles to fight? Why would He do that? Well, here's the thing. If God can be faithful and powerful enough to get them across the river, then when you get to the other side, it's a piece of cake. Oh, but there's giants in the land. Who cares? If our God can get us across a river and they're going to go across on dry land, wait till we get to this. Oh, it's phenomenal what God is going to do. Then they're going to have a victory, a spiritual victory behind them that is going to carry the day as they go into other battles. And here's the problem with a lot of... Christians today, is they don't have any spiritual victories. When it, when it gets tough, rather than going through the process I, was, process I was talking about, or praying and then going through the Scriptures and all this, what they do is, well, I'll just avoid it. If what they can't avoid, they connive, and they think it's on their own shoulders because it's scary to depend on the Lord if you haven't done it before. But if you've done it before and you've seen His his faithfulness, then that gives you courage to have more spiritual victories. One spiritual victory is built on top of another and another. And that's why He wanted them to go through this impossible task, to get to the other side of the river, to show them, if I can do that with this raging river, the giants are nothing but a bunch of ants. They're just a nuisance. What am I going to do to them? And what happened to the first city they come to? Jericho. And the people, you know, wall city and all this. God says, go around it seven times, blow the horns, do all this. And what happens? The wall's falling. Do we have a great God? Don't you think it's time for us to have a, at least start with a spirit? If you've never had a spiritual victory, it's about time. You're going to go through life like those Israelites that were afraid to take take the land and wander about, confused, and unhappy, miserable. Or you can have the abundant life, that supernatural spiritual life that God has offered to you, whereby you are not... Change to your circumstances. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are. Your care, your confidence and courage, your happiness, all that is inside of you. It doesn't matter what happens on the outside. This is what God is offering you. This is what we need to do is start obeying those general commands by pulling the trigger, going through the process that I said, and then do it. And we have a 100% guarantee that our God is going to do whatever you can't do. And He's going to bless you mightily. Now I'd like everyone please to bow your heads. Some people may be in this audience that are not really struggling with the idea of having a spiritual victory. They may be struggling with the idea of where they're going to spend eternity. The good news is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, went to the cross and died for your sins. He was buried and rose again, and now He offers eternal life to anyone who will trust Him and Him alone for it. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. God can only accept the perfect atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. and The way that you receive it is simply by believing in Him. And you can do it right now. Your eternal destiny, destiny can be sealed this very moment. You don't have to walk an aisle. You don't have to raise your hand. God knows exactly what you're thinking right now. And the moment that you put your trust in Him and not your own works and you accept that free gift of salvation, you're born again, your heaven, your ticket to heaven is guaranteed, then it becomes an issue of what are you going to do with the time that is left? Are you going to be a spiritual casualty? Are you going to rise to the high ground of spiritual maturity and live the abundant life? Father, we're so thankful that you have revealed these things to us. We are so frail in our souls. We are so prone to be afraid and worry. But we're so thankful that you have given us through your grace and your Word and the Holy Spirit the power to arise above all these. Help us to be The Calebs and the Joshua's. And we pray this in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.